Welcome to It's Just Historical, a podcast dedicated to reading, writing, and publishing historical fiction. I'm your host, Suzanne Dunlap, author of Historical Fiction for Adults and Teens. This podcast is brought to you by my passion for the art and craft of writing fiction and my delight in talking to authors I admire about books I love. I'm so excited. I'm here with Lauren Willig, who is the author of the fabulous, oh, many fabulous books, the Pink Carnation series and, and um, oh God, of course, uh, The Summer Country, and she's a New York Times bestseller. And uh, her most recent book will be out March 2nd. Just in time for Women's History Month. I know, I know. It's awesome because it's called Band of Sisters, and it happens to be on a subject that is very near and dear to my heart. It's the Smith College Relief Unit in World War I who went over and worked to to bring relief to these decimated villages that had been totally destroyed by the Germans as they went through. Anyway, I am so excited and I read the book and it is fabulous and you'll all love it. And so, and I think it's already gotten some great stuff, right? Is it like a Indie Next or? It is. It's an Indie Next pick, which makes me so happy. So great. Really great. So anyway, I ha- I've been dying to ask you, how did you come upon these women? What happened to make you decide to write this book? Well, I stumbled on them absolutely accidentally, which is always the way the best things happen. I had had no idea the Smith College Relief Unit existed, but I was researching another book. I, in addition to my own books, I co-write with my good friends, Beatrice Williams and Karen White, and we were writing a book set in World War I, World War II, and 1960s France. And for the World War I period, we needed to know what it would have been like in occupied France um, celebrating Christmas under the German occupation. So I was desperately searching for Christmas customs in Picardy during World War I, and up popped a memoir by a Smith alumna talking about throwing Christmas parties for villagers um, right behind the front lines. And I thought, wait, this has to be a novel. This has to be something someone made up. What on earth are a group of Smithies doing there dressed up as Father Christmas? It made no sense. But so of course I was procrastinating. So I read the whole memoir and it turned out it was not fiction. This actually happened. There was a group of Smith alumni who went overseas to bring humanitarian aid to French villagers right behind the front lines. And that memoir whetted my appetite for more because the memoir itself, you know, as is the way of memoirs, it was written after the fact. It was couched in somewhat periodically obscure terms, you know, as she glossed over things that I guess she didn't want to talk about and all that. And some things were mushed together, you know, as one does. But the outline of the story was there, that you had this charismatic alumna who gave the call for action and said there's a humanitarian crisis in France and the people needed to fix it are clearly Smith alumni, American college women. Because if you want something done right, you ask an all-girls school girl. And within three months, she had a troop selected, outfitted. They designed their own uniforms and on a ship to France, where they went to a little village called Greycourt, um, depending on where the lines were at a given moment, about somewhere around 11, 9 to 11 miles behind the front lines. And um, their job was basically social service and relief work, rebuilding villages, um, classes for children, 
basic medical care. There were two doctors in the group. And they were there from October, well, they landed in France in August of 1917, made it to their headquarters in September, and they were there until the end of March of 1918, when the Germans advanced again, and everything got very dramatic very quickly. Yes, and uh, I should tell everyone that I am actually sitting uh, about a half a mile away from what are known as the Greycourt Gates at Smith. And I was a Smith, I am a Smith alum. And so that's one of the reasons I was like, oh, goody, jumping up and down about this book. Um, well, and the incredible thing is that the Great Court Gates at, at Smith are an exact replica of the gates on the ruined chateau where the Smithies were headquartered. And I've been kind of shocked by how many Smithies I've spoken to who had no idea that that was where the gates came from. Um, but yes, I, guess I had no idea until I read and I thought, Great Court, oh, the gates. <laughs> <laughs> Because, you know, these things are just such a part of the fabric of your life. You walk by them all the time. You never think about them or where they came from or why they're named what they're named. They're just part of your world. Yeah, yeah. If times were different and I was walking around downtown, I would have taken a picture of them long before now because <laughs> you can see them. Smith is perched on a hill right at the end of Main Street and the Grey Court gates are right there. You know, it's what you see when from down in, in the village, in the town. So um, what, one of the things I really loved about this, uh, because we've been sort of barraged with World War books, World War II, World War I, I loved that this was about the relief work, about the stuff that, that isn't glamorous, about the, um, not the sort of spies doing dangerous stuff, although that's a lot of fun too. Um, but you, this work that could have been seen as very, pedestrian and behind the scenes, you brought to life so well. So tell me a little bit about your strategies for how you did that. Well, you know, in this case, you know, usually when, when I work on my books, I'm pulling together all sorts of little bits of fragmented sources and triangulating around absence and really making choices about strategies. With this book, I really feel like I was so spoiled because in the so Sophia Smith collection at Yale, there is a treasure trove of material, um, thousands and thousands of pages of letters that the real members of the Smith College Relief Unit wrote home from the front. And these letters have been preserved and the lovely, amazing, helpful librarians of Smith College special collections digitized thousands of pages and sent them to me. So I was able to read their experiences in real time. And so unlike most of my books where I really am making um, plot choices and crafting their world and creating the narrative arc. Here, I feel like the arc was handed to me. When I, my, my biggest problem was they did so many incredible things that I couldn't cram them all in. Um, and like you said, when I say incredible things, I'm not talking about, you know, going undercover in German headquarters disguised as a cleaning lady. Um, I'm talking about things like getting getting chickens for French villagers. So there'll be eggs for the children. Um, they, that was actually one of their big problems was this had been an agricultural area. It had been one of the bread baskets of France. And the Germans, when they pulled out, the Germans had occupied the area for three years. I mean, we always talk about occupied France during World War II, but they occupied it in World War I too. And boy, did they do a job on the area. They poisoned the wells, they broke the plows, they dynamited any structures they could 
dynamite. Basically, they did every they did everything but sow the fields with salt. And they probably would have done that too if they had enough time. And so one of the big jobs the Smith College women faced was rebuilding the agricultural base that was the backbone for this region. And many of these were they were well-educated, urban, upper middle class women who had never met a cow before. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, there are some really, really funny moments in the book, I have to say, moments when I definitely laughed out loud um, for that reason. But what was also interesting to me is that even though it was, it highlighted in some ways a lot of the differences of Smith as a community, as a place, because there was a real class consciousness there too. You know, there was like, there were like the women who were, the upper class women who went to Smith to find, you know, because they were going to go to college because they were going to meet somebody and get married to a really nice prospect. And then other people who came on scholarship, whatever. Um, and you did a really good job of that. How, what made you decide to have those two women friends? Was that something that was given to you or is that something you, you created? That was, it was a combination. So when I was reading that initial memoir by Ruth Gaines, um, Ladies of Grey Court, one of the things that jumped out at me was the subtle difference in tone used when referring to the one Catholic member of the unit. There was very much a sort of us against them, you know, as those people do. And of course, the, the peasants, well, they sometimes in their letters, they refer to them as peasants. The villagers with whom they were dealing were Catholic. And so there was a very, you could sense that air of condescension. And the one Catholic member of the Smith College Relief Unit was treated as a sort of, oh, she can talk to these people because she knows what it's like. And that really struck me. And so one of the things I did go in and research when I was working on this book was the history of Smith College, because I wanted to know what their, what these women's prehistory would have been like. What was their experience at Smith? What were the worlds they came from? You know, who were they before they joined the Smith unit? And I found, among other things, um, a some rather archaic histories of Smith College, and in them were breakdowns of the demographics um, for, I think, the year I had was 1911. And I was fascinated because in any given year, um, there would be maybe, there would be roughly three Catholic students and one Jewish student per class. <laughs> and which, to give you as contrast, there were 50 Baptist students, which is not sort of a category I would have thought you would have seen, but you have every variety of Protestant and then these tiny, tiny, tiny numbers of Catholic and Jewish students. And I thought, well, what must that experience have been like for them? And then sort of leaving that and moving on to sort of broader class distinctions, what really struck me while I was researching life at Smith was that it was not the seven sisters as we think of them from Mad Men or the 1950s, <laughs> that this was actually still a very different seven sisters. This, in many ways, the Smith that these women attended in the earlier part of the 20th century had more in common with the Smith of the founders of that founding generation of Smith, where they were still trying to prove very hard that women could be just as educated as men. This was not a finishing school. And in fact, if you read, there are a couple of novels I read written by Smithies about their life at Smith around the turn of the century. And one theme that comes out is persuading people that it is not, in fact, unladylike like, or death to your marital prospects to go to Smith. Um, that this is not a place for wealthy dingbats at this point. You know, this is very much a 
our Greek had better darn well be better than that of the boys at Yale. Mm -hmm. And so that's why, you know, while I have, I have my scholarship student, my, my two heroines are a scholarship student um, from an Irish Catholic Brooklyn family, very much a tree grows in Brooklyn and a, um, the daughter of an eccentric socialite suffragette from an old Knickerbocker Mayflower family. And the reason I had to make her mother an eccentric socialite suffragette was because, you know, someone of that echelon would not otherwise at that time period have gone to Smith. She would have done the debut. It was actually in some ways very controversial for my heroine, Emmy, and her cousin, Julia, who's also in the book, who's a doctor, to choose to go the educational route instead of just doing the debutante thing and marrying some nice union club member. And so I think the problem is we have this idea of the seven sisters that's tainted by the finishing school reputation the schools acquired later on. It wasn't like that. I mean, it was rigorously academic. I have to tell you, uh, I have to tell you a, a family anecdote of mine. My mother also went to Smith and she was in the class of 51 and she, her father was an educator. He, he was headmaster of Tower Hill School uh, for like 10 years and stuff. And anyway, he was quite an extraordinary person. He was a Yaley. My mother got into Smith, Vassar and Wellesley all on the same day. And she really wanted to go to Wellesley. Her father said, you're going to Smith. That's where the smart girls go. <laughs> <laughs> so it still did, even in the 50s, have that reputation as being a rigorous school. And you I know. think it still does. It definitely does now. But I think the problem is for, for readers coming out without that personal experience, um, but so many of us, our views are filtered through watching Mad Men and those oh, yeah. scenes where you see all of the seven sisters alums sitting around together saying, well, I went to Bryn Mawr and I studied the French Renaissance and, you know, now I'm baking cakes. And so, yeah. the, I, you know, there's. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely those pressures, societal pressures existed then even for well-educated, smart women. I, I was very much struck how, by how I do think we have this idea now as women's colleges were something that wealthy women did as a matter of course, when in the period in which I'm writing about, it's actually the opposite. You don't do this as a matter of course. It was an act of will on the part of the women attending Smith to say, I'm going to do this. And of course, there were, there were actually one of the things that popped up up in one of my research materials was there were a, you know a handful of smithies who went because they wanted to be invited to Yale prom but for the most part <laughs> these were incredibly hard-working driven women who were also very involved in the suffrage movement who were you know pioneering their way into fields that had not previously been open to women and so that was really the norm rather than the exception yeah and there was a group of women I mean I did some research around the 1911 period for a manuscript I have. And there were women, they would go to um, the mills in Holyoke and do sort of charity work, outreach. And they would, they would sort of, they definitely were a little bit like um, social service people, even locally, even within their community. So I think that sense of we need to help, we need to organize and do something was very strong uh, all well, along. It seems like it's very, that is a Smith tradition that is just so bred into the backbone of Smith and has carried over over the years. So although I did not myself have the benefit of going to Smith, I went to, I know it's, I feel like such a poser having written this book, but I went to a little old girls school in New York that was run by a Smithy. 
Um, she had come to Smith. It was her first job out of Smith in the 1950s. And by the time I got there in the 80s, she had been headmistress for about 30 years and had basically shaped the school in her image. But every year she would call us together and give us a speech about how she had been a scholarship girl at Smith and it had changed her life and that we owed the world for the educational opportunities we had been given. And it was our obligation to go out and do good because we had been given so much. And so when I, all these years later, stumbled upon this memoir and then went from there to the letters of the Smith College Relief Unit members, I could hear my headmistress's voice in my head. And suddenly all of these things she told us made sense to me. And I realized it was part of that Smith tradition and that Smith lineage that she had brought with her and brought to the Chapin School in New York. But that strong tradition of service which, I mean, completely motivates these women who went off to France during World War I. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I also get a sense of the detail. It, it's so rich. You really get a, get a feeling for how these women were thought of by the people who were there, too. And, um, you know, was that something that, that you gleaned from the memoir or... Yeah. Well, that was something that was in the letter. So I left the memoir. I, I don't want to diss the memoir. It was. I, I'm grateful to the memoir for getting me into it. Um, but as soon as I got from the memoir to their actual letters, I began to realize in how many places the memoir had left things out or mildly skewed things. Or, you know, it basically, the memoir was, was useful as a jumping board. But uh, beyond that, I was so delighted to get to the real letters because these were in many cases, unedited accounts of what was happening minute by minute. These were the things they were scribbling off on bits of stationery cached from Paris hotels that they were sending via friends who were randomly going home in the hopes that the censors wouldn't be able to read them. So, you know, you're reading sort of the, the unedited daily accounts of their lives, and it gets very raw and personal in places. But yes, the bit of the stuff about how the people there perceive them was definitely something that came out of these letters. Um, there's a bit in the book where uh, my, my, the love interest of one of the women informs her that the children have started playing a game uh, called the ladies of gray court where, <laughs> yeah, they, they run around in a little circle and fall down and pretend to be hurt. And then some, the ladies help them up again and all that. <laughs> and that came straight out of the record was, you know, for these children, the, the Smith College Relief Unit members, they, they made such a difference in their lives in so many ways. These were children who hadn't had proper food for months. They'd been sleeping literally on planks in the mud and the Smithies came and they brought them beds and they brought them blankets. And they were doing what you said before, all the unglamorous little stuff. They bought cows and they milked the cows and they made the rounds with these giant jugs of milk every day to make sure all the kids had milk. And they were dealing with thousands of villagers in villages spread out around. I mean, on the map, it looks small, but for them and their little trucks in the deep mud of the Somme, these were you know big dif- distances they were traveling relatively to make sure these kids had their milk. And they joked that they hauled so much furniture for these people who had nothing, that when the war was over, they'd be able to qualify as furniture movers. And so it was, you know, they really, they, they literally, they rebuilt people's lives 
from the ground up. And they did it without any experience of those things too. I mean, that's what's really interesting to me. I mean, like only one of them could drive, knew how to drive. <laughs> so they kind of had to figure all that out. And, you know, they just they just had to sort of make it up as they went along. And um, with the, the exception of the medical care, of course, which had to be provided by people who were trained. But even there they had, you know, they had two doctors who were attached um, one who was a fully accredited um, Smith grad from, I want to say the class of 1896, who's a very you know, a remarkable character in her own right. Um, the woman on whom I based my fictional one was Alice Weld Talent, who was a groundbreaking female doctor and said that basically she had never seen anything in the slums of Philadelphia like what she saw in these French villages, that the need was just so great and just so staggering. But anyway, so yeah, they had two trained doctors, but they had no nurses. And so a lot of these women took on nursing obligations with really no official training. But the, the idea of their eccentric and fascinating founder was that their Smith education should enable them to turn their hand to anything they tried. And it didn't matter if they'd never assembled a truck before. They were smart women. They should be able to figure out and ditto all of this other stuff. Although, you know, in some ways I feel a little disingenuous by saying that none of them had any training because what a number of them did have was a settlement house background. Right, right. Yeah, yeah because this was the great age of settlement house work, you know, like the Junior League, you know, before the Junior League also became sort of, you know, stereotyped as something wealthy socialites do for fun. It was, this was real nitty gritty work where educated upper middle class women would go into underserved areas and bring, um, hygiene classes, um, basic literacy, and social work, basic social work. Um, and so a lot of the members of the real Smith College Relief Unit had that settlement house background. They had gone into settlement house work right after Smith. And so were able to take that experience and translate it to these French villages, even though they were dealing not with an American urban slum, but with these war devastated French villages. It's such a such an evocative and uh, richly observed kind of world. I think you quote some of the letters in in the book too. Are they the the actual letters that you quote, well, or that did was, you? That was a very narrow line because um, so. You know, back in the day, uh, in addition to my other random degrees I picked up, I have a law degree. And so I'm always very twitchy about reproducing things without permission. But some of the letters were published in the Smith Alumni Quarterly in 1917 and 1918. So those are um, technically in the public domain and can be quoted. So each, because I wanted, I love these letters so much. I wanted people to have a flavor of what it was like reading the real Smith units letters, what these, because they were, they were snarky, they were hilarious, they were clever, they were heartfelt, they were, the letters are, I, there were times I wanted to abandon the whole book and just do an annotated version of their letters. It was so wonderful. But so this was my compromise, putting little snippets of letters. But what I do is I translate them to the voices of my own individual characters. So some of the letter headings are entirely my own invention. Others are very closely paraphrased versions of real letters, but they are in fact paraphrased. And where letters were in the public domain in the Smith Alumni Quarterly, sometimes when I particularly fell in love with a phrase, I would catch a whole phrase for one of my letters and incorporate it into the otherwise fictional context. So they're, they're very much a pastiche, but I really hope 
that they capture the tone of the original and that they'll inspire readers to go click on the Smith Alumni Quarterly Archives and read the excerpts of the real letters that were printed there in the alumni mag that are there online for free. It's it's such a rich resource. Of course, the Smith Library, <laughs> it's being completely rebuilt and it's supposed to be done this spring. And uh, so getting anything, getting access to anything, any of their collection is really hard right now. So it's, and and we're so lucky to have so much material digitized, so much material available on the web. Oh, I know. It's incredible. You know, when I was, <laughs> I was TAing at Harvard back in the day, and when I say back in the day, the early thousands, and I remember warning my students off um, Googling things and using digital resources because, of course, the internet was in its infancy, and I would have students turning in papers where they would be citing um, the Marijuana Growers of America Association on Magna Carta because <laughs> there was a bit about Magna Carta that showed up in this marijuana the website. I was like, guys, no, this is not how this works. And so I feel a little sheepish now because Google has become one of my primary tools. But thanks to the Hathi Trust and Google Books now that there's so many out of print works that I would not otherwise be able to access. Like, for example, this memoir, um, yeah. Ladies of Great Court, that led me to the Smith unit. It was digitized by the Hathi Trust. And that's how I found it. And and the other thing, um, you know, the other thing that we always warn people against is Wikipedia. However, mm-hmm. there are many very scholarly entries on Wikipedia. And you can go down and they often have really good footnotes with sources so that you can actually find the sources that you need to get to from the general information that was there. Of course, you have to be discerning. You have to understand what's what's good and that's what isn't, always, but yeah. That's always the problem is approaching it with a critical mind. You know, even sometimes with the actual sources, you you have to use that same critical framework. Yes, because uh, yeah, prejudices and received opinions sort of sneak in all over the place, you know? Uh, so yeah. Uh, or people misremember that. things. You know, I that you, too. Oh, I know what I was, I was going to say. I know it, I better say it before I forget. <laughs> that the whole, the whole, thing that people I don't think people appreciate so much is that a memoir um, from the past is not necessarily at all objective. Often people wrote memoirs to kind of correct history, to sort of leave an impression that they want to leave. So um, for instance, when I was researching my forthcoming book about um, Adelaide Labiguiar, her principal rival left a three-volume memoir that she must have dictated in the mid mid 19th century and it is so it, it's so patently based on the research other research I did there are so many gaps and so many things she never actually mentions the name of this woman who was her main rival ah oh, which is very telling very telling. But anyway, that's just, you know, because we think, oh, I have a primary source. I have this <laughs> no, memoir. That's <laughs> reliable than anything else. And I figured that out. And, you know, you and I have discussed our love for Madame Campan before. Yeah. But when I was my senior year of Chapin, um, I somehow got the English department to let me write a historical novel as my individual study. And I wrote, I wanted to be Jean Plady when I grew up at that point. <laughs> so I wrote a novel about Hortense de Barnet, on whom I had a huge girl crush. And I used her memoir 
as my primary, of course, you know, I had a whole, you know, shelves of books about Napoleon and Napoleon's court and Napoleon's family and blah, blah, blah. But I was so excited. I had her memoir. And, you know, Hortense's memoir, of course, she writes it years later. I mean, after everything. And, you know, from that, you would believe she was the most virtuous person to ever walk the earth. And it's just, you know, looking back now, I realized, you know, how incredibly doctored and that whole thing was and it was years later I remember that I realized just how much she had jumped over or changed or you know played with but that's given me a healthy suspicion of memoirs ever since yeah exactly is there anything you want people to know about the book that I have not even thought to ask you oh my goodness no I think you have well, the one thing that really struck me that it's less about the book per se and more about the Smith College Relief Unit. Um, I was very much struck by the fact that in their time, the Smith College Relief Unit was a media sensation. And I, I think that's something that comes through in the book. This was a very deliberate act on the part of their founder, Harriet Boyd Hawes, who you know set up a press campaign the minute they were over there in France, she even came up with a catchy name for them, Les, les Collegiens Américains, which, of course, was totally wrong because collegians in French yeah. isn't college women. High it's school. Yeah. 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 So they very quickly changed that, became Les, les Dames Américains instead. But she had this idea that they were going to have this handy moniker and everyone would know about them and that this would advance the cause of women's education and women's suffrage at the same time it was advancing the lives of these particular French villagers. It was really very canny. And it actually kept them from being kicked out when their sector changed into the hands of the British, who didn't like women in their war zone. They were like, you know, yeah. we have to protect you. We don't want yeah. you here. And they were like, really, you don't have to protect us. We're Smith women. <laughs> you don't get yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, yeah, but there was such a hue and cry when the Brits tried to evict them because they were so well-known and so popular. They showed up in all the American papers. And I just find it deeply fascinating that after all of that, you know, they were so famous that the Red Cross joked that the Smith unit joining the Red Cross would up the Red Cross's image. And you know, <laughs> now no one's heard of them. And it just yeah. it's and I think it's some of it is what you were saying about the nature of their work, mm-hmm. that what they were doing was not glamorous. Mm-hmm. They were doing social service work. They were doing teaching. They were doing agricultural work. It's all the sort of basic stuff to rebuild lives. And so, and at the time that was recognized, but now we like our history. We have an idea of what wars are like. We like our history more glamorous. And so the Smith unit was forgotten. And I just, I think it's so important to bring stories like this back and balance the record. hundred percent agree with you. Um, I think that, uh, I hope that, people who will read this will will definitely get that that sense and understand a, a facet of the war that i you know i certainly didn't even think of you know and you know it's really interesting because now and i can't remember i think it was in world war 2 that uh Anne morgan and her cohort went it was, and it was world war 1 actually yeah that it was exactly world war 1 i couldn't remember too. but yeah, they did a similar kind of thing. And you it know? wasn't just Anne Morgan. And here's the thing, because I fell in love yeah. with these Smithies, and I would love to claim that they were entirely unique and you know, mm. one of a kind. But the truth is, they were among other people who were doing similar work. Anne Morgan was over there. Helen Clay Frick was over there doing oh, work. Oh, right. Yeah. Although yeah. the funny thing with Anne Morgan 
is so in their letters, um, a couple of members of the Smith unit go over and visit Anne Morgan at her headquarters at Blaringcourt. And they come back being like, she has a non-ruined chateau and her <laughs> tea is served on China because <laughs> they were roughing it in these horrible army barracks on the grounds yeah. of a ruined chateau. I mean, living in really deplorable conditions. And there was Anne Morgan several miles away living in luxury with her tea being brought to her on a silver salver. And there was wallpaper on the walls. And yeah, it was yeah. just like, you know, and you know, it's so funny reading the letters because you get on the one hand, they're like, no, no. We're doing this the way we should be doing this, but there's this little note of wistfulness. Yes, <laughs> they I were know. very reluctant. Um, they were unlike Anne Morgan and Helen Clayfrick, who were funded by their own personal fortunes. Um, the Smith Unit was funded by Smith alumni and donations, and they were very conscious that they had to account for every single penny spent. And they had a new director come in about midway through their time there, who was like. I don't know how to get these girls to spend any money on themselves. You give them money, mm -hmm. they'll go buy things for the kids. Mm -hmm. And yeah. you know, there they were, they were really, they had such a, and that I think is what makes them different from some of these other projects. But back yeah. to your original point, there were, there was a lot of relief work going on. There were a lot of American women over there contributing to the war effort in their way. And we've forgotten all of them because it just yeah. doesn't tie in with our narrative yeah. of World War One. Exactly. And, you know, just so in case people don't know, Anne Morgan is J.P. Morgan's daughter. It is all so fascinating. And, and I love digging up these slightly obscure bits of history, as you know. <laughs> and yeah. Um, yeah, we have that in common, I think. But anyway, um, I think we're yes. both interested in distaff history. And I, yeah. I sort of, and I get very frustrated with the idea that women's history is somehow a separate discipline. Yeah. And that what we're doing is pulling up the outliers when in fact, what we're doing is we're taking something that was there and we yeah. are restoring it to the picture where it ought to have been. Yeah, it I'll tell you what bothers me more than anything is when people call it her story. I'm yeah. like, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's all history. It's just that, you know, the women were written out of it a little bit. You well, know, this is it's not like it's separate. Yeah. This is something that's driving me absolutely nuts right now because um, I'm writing a sort of prequel to Band of Sisters. I got fascinated by the life of the founder of the Smith Unit and I took a fictionalized version of her and um, used, so Harriet Boyd Hawes and her youth wound up getting wrapped up in both the Greco-Turkish War of 1898 and then came back to America and nursed in the Spanish-American War. And there's all this crazy stuff that happened and I was fascinated. There are some weird inconsistencies, which you know are meat and drink to historical fiction writers because they're like, wait, why doesn't she mention that? What actually happened there? Why is there this blip in her life? Yeah. But anyway, so I have been researching the Spanish-American War and the real founder of the Smith Unit, Harriet Boyd Hawes, went and nursed with Clara Barton and the Red Cross. And it has been driving me nuts because Clara Barton and the Red Cross did amazing and important things during the Spanish-American War. But if you read the official um, monographs about the Spanish-American War, there are two big ones that came out relatively recently. One has one line about the Red Cross and the other has not a single reference. And I'm very lucky. I have a good librarian friend who is amazing at pulling up um forgotten bits of history for me. And she found me some of the stories of the real women of the Red Cross who were over there. And again, like the Smith unit, there were a couple who were media sensations. There was one woman known as the Angel of the Seneca because she was on a troop ship called the Seneca where she single-handedly, and she was not a trained nurse. She was a journalist who had not been able to get accredited, but she 
Clara Barton was like, you write good stuff about the Red Cross. You can come with my group. You're going to have to do some nursing. We'll show you the ropes. But, you know, she wasn't a trained nurse, but she saved an entire ship full of sick people that had been sent off insufficiently provisioned. And this was, she testified before the president about the mistakes that had been made during the war. Anyway, it was a really, really big deal. I had never heard of her. She's not mentioned in any of these books. You know, but for these ancient articles, my librarian friend dug up for me, I would have no idea she existed. And she's just one of many. And, but that thing about there being no lines or one line about the Red Cross in these official books on the topic drove me nuts. Whereas you know, they'll tell you what Teddy Roosevelt ate for breakfast on any given day. Now, right. don't get yeah. me wrong. I love Teddy Roosevelt. He's a fascinating character, but it seems uneven. I have to share with you some a project I'm doing, uh, nonfiction. I am uh, I'm pretty much almost done with my proposal for a book about women composers. I, you know, I, I've a music background. I was, I have a PhD in music history and um, in looking through all of the books available, this is for young, young adults, mm -hmm. right? All of the books about composers, they're all men. They don't even mention that there were women. I think there's one book that mentions Clara Schumann, but other than that. It's maddening. Yeah. Well, and when they do mention, it's almost like they're doing you a special favor, bringing in this less talented, less interesting person because yeah. she's female. And it's yeah. like, no, don't do us no, anything. No, 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 no. Yeah. We're actually, I mean, it's the same with female artists, yeah. um, which I only know a little bit about because in one of my books in my Pink Carnation series, I had a female artist. And so I was digging into Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun and her compatriot. Well, she's and the one who wrote the three volume memoir that doesn't mention Adelaide Labiguiard. <laughs> oh, really? That was Vigée yes. Lebrun? That yeah, was so Vigée Lebrun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I have a very funny book called The Trouble with Women. It's a little tiny illustrated book, mm -hmm. and I can't remember the name of the author. I'll put it in the notes. But the on the back cover, it says, can women be geniuses or are their arms too short? <laughs> 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 and it's all about the crazy things that men used to say, just why women couldn't be as good as they were and did, couldn't do things, you know. And you know I, we are just we're prone to hysteria. Yeah. Oh, that too. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Or, and women painters had weak hands, so they couldn't hold the brush for very long. <laughs> oh dear. That's just, I mean, we could just talk about this for hours. Not the, way, the minute women move into a profession that they have previously been told they're inadequate to be part of, suddenly that profession becomes less snazzy and exciting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, exactly. isn't it funny to think there was a time when teaching was an elite profession because, of course, it was educated men and therefore it must be important. But the minute the bulk of teachers became women, suddenly teaching starts to be looked down on and treated as an extension of caregiving, which, as we all know, takes no effort at all and can be done. By yeah, anyone. no effort at all. No. Yeah. 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 Oh, yes. Well, I've kept you on for an awfully long time, but I, you know, this is a long overdue conversation and I hope we have many more. And I hope when the world opens up again, that you'll come up to Northampton and visit and we'll be able to actually, you know, go I to would be the delighted. library and, have, and, and yeah, we can have be. this discussion over drinks or coffee yes. or something yes. like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I really, really appreciate you coming on here. It's band of sisters, the women of Smith college go to war by New York Times bestselling author of The Summer Country, Lauren Willig, who in addition to being a great author is a lovely human being. And um, 
I I will I hope everybody goes out and buys it and makes it a huge success and and learns something. As somebody said that that uh, historical fiction is the gateway drug to history. So <laughs> this is a really good gateway drug. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Marvel, I do so love being a gateway drug. Thank you. And your program is a brilliant gateway drug for history. Thank you. Thank, thank you. So you. It's been doing this. It's so much fun. I mean, I really do it for my own selfish reasons. Because <laughs> I get to uh, get to talk to people like you. I will say goodbye. And um, we will talk again. Yes, we will talk. And thank you so much for all of you, all that you've been doing, all your support for the book. I so appreciate it. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to It's Just Historical, hosted by Suzanne Dunlap. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google. Visit the podcast website at itsjusthistorical.com and find out more about me and my books at suzanne-dunlap.com. That's Suzanne with an S and Dunlap with an A. Until next time.